Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory, and uh, very special guest today. Back for her second appearance on Hit Factory, the inimitable Roxana Hadadi is on the show. Roxana, hello, and thank you for coming back. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm very excited to be back. I like that we, you know, went to a diversity corner after we did a non-diverse movie. So I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> yes, you for that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We are always happy to. And and thank you for, you know, being game to come on for, for a film like this. I, I, that doesn't surprise me, you know, knowing knowing your body of, of work and in, in writing and knowing your, your taste you. in film. You know, we've we've done some some big films on the show. We've done some films that I think would be considered like important or classic TM. Mm-hmm. But I think that this might be like the first true like masterpiece we've talked about on the show. Like one that is just like transcendent in mm-hmm. its greatness and in its uh in its interpretation on on cinema and the form and and its its legacy. Uh we are talking today about our first international feature as well on the show, uh, Abbas Kiarostami's 1990 film, Close Up. I don't know what to say besides- like, What just, is there just to even say? A, a right? remarkable, that, the show's yeah. over at this point. Yeah, we're just we're gonna done, say, actually. Yeah. we watched it, go watch it. Like yeah, that. It was good, go watch it, yeah. Um, well, my question for you guys is, is this your first Kiarostami movie just like in life like I know for the podcast it's your first international but is it your first in life it is not so I this is actually my second watch of close-up uh within within the last like year or two Mm -hmm. um so so I I came to it very recently but I was privileged enough to have uh, a film professor in college when I was when I was doing my my degree who was a huge Kiarostami fan Cool. Uh, and so we watched for uh, one of his courses, both A Taste of Cherry and The Wind Will Carry Us. Mm, that's a good duo. It, nice. It's great. They're they're beautiful, beautiful films. It totally blew me away. I was, I, I left it feeling like I had just finished like a, a, a great like epic novel both mm-hmm. times. And and you know, and even so, there's still just these like very very small, very delicate, gentle movies. You know, like yeah. they're they're just. I don't know, like like they just glow. They literally just glow in in you once you watch them. They're incredible. Um, but it, there are still definitely some, you know, some blind spots for me. I, I haven't mm-hmm. seen any of the Coker trilogy. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a wide array and, and selection of those available readily on on streaming services, specifically Criterion Collection, where where yeah. this one is. So um, definitely, I think after watching it this time with Carly. Uh, maybe a good excuse to dive in and watch some more of those. Mm-hmm. Carly, what about you? Was this your first? Yep. This is my first Kiarostami. And now I want to watch everything that he's made and everything mm-hmm. that Makhmalbaf has made. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we can we can talk a little bit more about um, just the emotional heft of the film. But it... Uh, it left a mark on me such that I was like, I am really upset that I'm coming to this creator so late in the game. Um, Because like you had said, there was some quote where someone was like, why does anyone else make movies? And I had the same feeling (laughs) like, why have I been watching other crap? Like, why have I not been spending more time with this person? But this is my very first experience with his work. Why did I go to six Marvel movies instead of, (laughs) instead of watching Kiarostami? You You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. 
there's there's a there's a time and a place for that kind of fair too i think you know not everything yeah. can be kiristami and i and i think that yeah. part of the appeal and charm of his work is that there really is no one else like him there was no one else like him so. what's yeah. your what's your experience and your history with him that is a good that's a good question I think that when I was a kid, so when I was growing up, we had like a real love hate. I don't, maybe not love hate, but like appreciation slash melancholy feeling toward Iranian films. Um, because my parents are cinemaphiles and we grew up watching like a lot of the stuff that they really liked, like David Lean and a lot of like classics. But Iranian movies made them very sad um, mm. to think about like a country that, you know, they don't want to go back and live in and they have sort of a complicated relationship as expats and all of that stuff. So I think maybe we watched one of the Coker trilogy movies, maybe when I was a kid, but I don't have like super strong memories of that. And then again, in college was really obviously one that sort of took hold because my freshman year I took a Persian literature and film class Mm. and that was really interesting and introduced me to his work and then um after that I think it was Taste of Cherry that I saw first Mm. and then um after college yes very much falling down the like criterion well (laughs) and like checking out as much as I could so then after that obviously like the other films in the Coker trilogy um my favorite of which is Through the Olive Trees and then of course Close Up and then The Wind Will Carry Us which I love very much and is named after a Furukh Farukhzad poem and she was like an Iranian feminist poet who had like a very tragic death but also made like films of her own Mm. um so yeah I mean he obviously was R.I.P. buddy he was very much like the Iranian godfather of like Iran's equivalent of new wave cinema this sort of collapse of fiction and documentary and I don't want to say every film because I don't know if every film does this but most films sort of have this commentary on like what is a movie and how do we as a society recreate our reality through film and then like comment on our reality through the form of that so it's interesting now because like close-up is so much that right it's Mm -hmm. a movie that is sort of a documentary about a real thing that happened and everybody is like playing their own parts and then with taste of cherry you sort of have that too where the final moments are you know moving backward and revealing the camera crew and then the entire coker trilogy is like this because the first movie is sort of a standalone and then the second and third movies are movies about the making of the first movie again with like people playing real life characters as a quote-unquote playing real life characters (laughs) um so it's very much this like self-referential puzzle web hall of mirrors like everything is sort of informing on itself and for me as like an iranian person and this could potentially be too abstract but it sort of feels like what asghar Farhadi then made his career where it's like so much of living as an iranian in iran 
is being different people all mm. the time because you are like a public person who has to follow like religious doctrine and Islamic law and say what you need to say. And then you are your private at your house person, which mm. is where you can like, if you're a woman, take off your headscarf and your chador and like, you know, say what you want to say, live how you want to live, etc. So there's always this sort of like duality, I think, in terms of Iranian life. And it isn't a uniquely post-revolution thing. Like mm -hmm. under the Shah, there was also sort of this kind of duality because he had his own secret police and, you know, like his own fascism of a kind. Right. So I just think it's sort of like a uniquely Iranian sort of perspective that I think you see different Iranian filmmakers take advantage of in terms of how they play with this idea of what is reality actually and how do we either uphold it or subvert it through daily life. Hmm. Hmm. That was a lot. Sorry, guys. No. Like, no. <laughs> That's, that, we need that context. That's exactly what we want to talk about with this film. Yeah. And so glad that you're bringing, you know, so much of that to to the conversation, because there's something interesting here in, in Kiristami's success, you know, as, as being a filmmaker who was, uh, you know, prolific before the revolution and after and, and kind of being the sort of stalwart figure within mm -hmm. Iranian cinema for, you know, a, a very considerable length of time. And then also looking at some of the filmmakers who came along in in the wake of that 79 revolution, right? Like Makhmabaf was someone who who was very much kind of a foil to Kiristami in this way, right? Like he mm -hmm. he was a, a still a very young man. He came to prominence with with the cyclist, you know, in in sort of a post revolutionary era. From from what I gather and what I what I understand, you know, part of his connection with Kiristami came from a little bit of his softening um, towards the towards towards his like sort of revolutionary ideas and conceits and and you know being this very uh sort of I don't want to say radical, but but being, being this very, you know, very uh, sort of rigid kind of character in terms of the sort of stories he was telling, sort of his beliefs, mm -hmm. you know, someone who was like jailed for some of his activity, you know, during mm -hmm. this revolution and then and then freed in the wake of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and their connection and their meeting around the time that this this situation with with Hossein Sabzian comes about being a byproduct of him working to make amends and, and trying to connect with these other filmmakers who for so long he kind of denounced or, or had been critical of within, mm -hmm. within this community. So, you know, the close up itself as a film seems like it's, it's very quietly subversive. Like it's like a deeply human, very small story um, and, and, and brilliant in its construction, but there is so much, so much to be like, like juiced from it in terms of like, it's, it's subtext and it's, 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 political position and right. specifically like you know like the 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 the, the class sort of you know uh, imperatives of the people at the core of the story well yeah. and to Roxana's point the questions it raises as a person watching the movie the things it makes you ask yourself mm -hmm. precisely as you said about like what is real and what is what is uh, the job of art, which is something they explicitly discuss in the in the film right. itself. Like I found myself not only, you know, considering the formal questions that he's asking, mm -hmm. uh, but also considering, you know, a lot of the yes, societal, but also personal questions about like identity. And as you said, who who I am mm -hmm. in certain contexts versus others. Um, yeah. 
and the, it's the questions that make the movie so rich beyond you know how how beautiful it is to look at well so i think do we want to talk do we want to give like a brief overview of the plot because i feel like that might be important to yes like, specify what we're talking about <laughs> i um, was i'm very curious roxana to see how you would like to summarize close up because oh man because uh, because at, at its core like i said good it's, luck it's a, with that it's a very yeah. very simple narrative but but the manipulations of that are the things that that really are kind of the heart and soul of the film yeah okay let's figure out how to do this (laughs) i i would almost say that it is a legal thriller Mm -hmm. about a case brought by a family against a man who impersonated the Iranian director, Mohsen Mohlabov, and pretended that he was him and ingratiated himself into this family. So the family presses charges against him, and all of that happened in real life. Then, okay, that's layer one. Layer one. <laughs> then, <laughs> then, this is like a lasagna of cinema. Oh, it so is. That's Incredible. layer one. Then, also in real life, Kia Rostami learned about this and decided that he wanted to make a movie about how this sort of persuasion and impersonation happened and what the relationship was between this man who was pretending to be this director and this family. And so Kia Rostami in real life approaches everyone and basically asks them if they want to play themselves in a recreation of what happened. So that's layer two. (laughs) And then layer three is a movie that uh, combines these recreations. So you get a recreation of how these people met, the sort of friendship that developed between them, and then how it sort of all fell apart in terms of the journalist who sort of started asking questions and realized that there was duplicity going on. And then finally the actual in court proceedings of what happened with this case in terms of how did this man defend himself and explain why he impersonated a famous reclusive Iranian director and how did this family feel about being duped? So all of that sort of combines into a movie that like jumps between timelines and jumps between perspective in terms of aligning us with sometimes Hossein Sabzian, who was the impersonator, sometimes with the family, sometimes in court with the judge, and which is really sort of exploring this idea of, as we talked about, like, what does the function of a movie, like the movie right now that is being made that we are watching, what is this movie doing in terms of getting inside someone's head and sort of sharing that perspective with us? And then the broader scale question of like, why do movies matter to us? And why do we care? And why would somebody, if you could pretend to be all the things in the world, why would this sad, lonely, underemployed man 
decide to pass himself off as a famous movie director. So there's a lot of things happening and a lot of like <laughs> collapsing sort of gazes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're watching a movie, but like, it's also a documentary. A lot of people, you know, sort of describe Kiorostami's work as docufiction, which I think part of this is because like when you're playing yourself, having had done a thing, how much of your own like hindsight or regret or your feelings now about who you were then, how do those things permeate what you're doing? So I just love so much of it because like, I feel like when I'm watching a movie, an actor is getting into the headspace of this like fictional character and you can sort of build an interior world or you have an author that, or a writer that you can turn to and be like, what's my motivation? And so you're sort of building something that is entirely in a way up to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like when you're playing yourself, you've already made the choices to do the things that you've done. And now you're trying to like understand or recapture what led you to this place. Mm. It's just like so much like meta energy. <laughs> yes, completely. Like, like I don't even understand, you know, I think it's very funny because I, when watching it, it almost feels like all of these performances are really like effortless. And I feel like you, if you were watching it, you could say to yourself like, well, everybody's like just being themselves. But speaking for myself, like if I tried to live a day like I lived it like six months ago, I would have no idea of like how to start that and how to go back to the person I was in that moment. So I actually feel like it is immensely difficult what this cast was asked to do Mm -hmm. to communicate to us like all of these different, I don't know, opinions, like regrets reactions all of these feelings (laughs) right well and there seems like you know there's this of course maybe like impulse you know humanly to to try to sort of like retcon your own reaction response to things right to try to sort of like uh either you know flatten it or or expand upon it and 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 to relay in a performance and in a recreation of the thing that you were responding to at the time in a way that feels more genuine to your perception of yourself right. than your actual yeah. reaction would have been, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, all of us have those stories that we can tell about ourselves where we, like, didn't react the way we thought we would react in a situation. Yes. Like, yep. kudos to anybody whose, like, self-realization syncs up with who they actually are. I don't think any of us are 100% that person all the time. Mm. So to have a film so clearly, like, lay that out in all of its like vulnerability and like frailty, I think is really immersive and challenging. Yeah. And the thing that I believe to be true about humans anywhere and everywhere is that we're always evolving. Like our entire lives, I I hope at least that we're always learning. We're always changing a bit and growing a bit more. So when you say yeah, the idea of playing myself six months ago, I know I was a different person six months ago, even if imperceptibly, right? And I I mean, I agree with you on on the performances being, you know, the ask of these people is was challenging. But 
like even the reporter in the car, his energy and and his sort of like manic, he's looking for directions and we start with him. And when I, I asked Aaron early on in the film, I was like, is is that the actual reporter? Because he mm-hmm. he was doing such an incredible job of situating me in his headspace. And I yeah, the performances are so effortless. But as you said, when you think about what's happening uh, emotionally and psychically with these people in order to portray the things that they're portraying it's hefty to say the least i had i had noted that uh you know in in the courtroom scenes uh which are themselves a recreation of Mm -hmm. of the actual decision and and this you know thing uh, another layer of artifice here that kiristami had scripted most of um sabzian's responses to the questions but that they were based on his actual responses Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, in, in, in interviews prior to the trial and, and his responses to the questioning by, by the judge. And when you watch it, I, I, you know, before I think I knew that layer of it, I was like, there is something so genuine about his responses that I, I, I can't believe that it's not just him actually authentically answering these things. And we should talk a little bit about Sabzian because he is absolutely breathtaking. He's he's just mesmerizing in every single moment. There's like something about his eyes and and his you know the way he stares and and when he's silent and and when he's not and I, I, there's I, there's no way for me to articulate it well. I think because it's just stupefying. It, it just may, turns me into babble when I'm just like <laughs> you've got to see this this person. Like he yeah. is so transfixing. Yeah, yeah. You you can't take your eyes off him while while you're watching this film. And something I was thinking about, too, just in terms of, like, recreating who these people were, is that, like, we're asking them to erase the knowledge that they know now that it was all a dupe, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is, like, summarily impossible. Like, I don't know if I could go back to who I was before finding out, like, a major secret or something. So I feel like... Sabzion's performance is so impressive because I don't think I don't think it reads like he is trying to go back to that place. I feel like everything about his performance is caught up in all the like regret and shame of what he's done. And that makes it really mesmerizing and engaging and deeply sad. And I just, I think that he, I don't know, I don't want to like assume too much, but it's very clear that the opportunity to do this was a way to further reconcile and apologize for his actions. Yes. And also, if we wanted to be cynical about it, a further way to be an actor, like an additional way to get what he wanted, which was to be an actor. Because also in the trial, when they ask him, well, what was better? (laughs) Pretending to be this fake director and, you know, location scouting this family's home and making up a whole story about what your next movie was going to be and like, you know, organizing all of those parts or was it to be an actor? And he says it was to be an actor. Mm -hmm. So there is also, and I think this might be, you know, something important to note and just my own cynicism is I think a lot of this movie is an opportunity for 
atonement and to explore reality and our preconceptions and how we grapple with betrayal and all of that stuff. But ultimately, it's still got Sabzi on what he wanted, which is its own sort of interesting layer in terms of he did something, frankly, bad, but the end product (laughs) still sort of aligned with what he wanted. And so it's interesting, too, that it's very clear that he regrets his actions. But I do wonder how much of it was this sort of like, oh, shit, like we're actually going to we're going to do this. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that cynicism, I think, can extend to really all the players in this, you Mm -hmm. know, like there, there is, of course, Farazman, the the reporter who Mm -hmm. saw the opportunity at a big scoop and and now gets even further recognition and Mm -hmm. further acclaim for this particular writing. And the Ahankas, the the, the family that was Mm -hmm. being, uh, being duped and and bamboozled themselves, right? Like uh, a a significant portion of the recounting of this story and, uh, and Sabzian's justification comes from him saying that, the reason they seem so willing to go along with this is because they love cinema too. Yeah. You know, our, our connection came about because of the, the two children's uh, love of film mm-hmm. and their desire to be in a movie. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I was giving them what they wanted as well. And, and, you yeah. know, there's a, there's another layer here pulled out too, where it's like Kiristami gives them the opportunity to do that same thing, to be in a film and to actually get the thing that they were seeking from this imposter. So, uh, you know, there's, Kiristami must be an incredibly persuasive person first and foremost but yeah but, like, but, all, but, but also like you know th- these are people who are already I think primed to to have the desire to be a part of something of this kind you know to, to be yeah. a part of this film and to to have the opportunity to be given sort of this platform and this visibility so um there yeah it, it's not just Sabzian though you you are right it, it seems that he gets everything he wants despite his duplicitousness here but um. yeah which isn't to like diminish the fact that like he served time right and that the iranian judicial system is uh unique let's let's put it that yes way. absolutely um and i think you know getting so uh forgive me if you guys knew this already but like sort of a core component of the judicial system is getting forgiveness from the people you've wronged. Mm -hmm. So that sort of like one-to-one, like I forgive you is simultaneously, I think a gigantic weight on the person who has been wronged because you're making a choice that could further impact the person who wronged you. And of course the person who is wronged, it's like, if people forgive you, then that like lessens your jail sentence and could lessen your punishment. Um, and there was a movie that came out last year called Yalda, A Night for Forgiveness, that very directly talks about this. Because uh, for a little while, during uh, like an Iranian holy month, there was a reality show that would run where wronged people and criminals would come on the reality show. Oh, wow. And each of them like plead their case. And then at the end, it was like, okay, do you forgive this person who wronged you or not? And then it was sort of like American Idol style where like you as an audience member could say whether you agreed or not. And you could donate to a fund that would be used for criminals to like pay back the people they had wronged. Because often it's like you get convicted and you serve time and you owe like a blood debt. If you like killed somebody or something like that, you owe a debt to their families. So that movie was like a fictionalized version of one of those like cases that was brought on like reality TV, essentially. So that's really interesting. I would recommend that movie. Um, But so like this concept of forgiveness, I think is also so interesting because 
both sides have to grapple with that, right? Like the family has to decide, like, do we forgive this person who through a series of decisions decided to keep like lying to us and duping us. And I think also for Sabzion, it's like, there is something very heartbreaking and sad about his reasons for doing this. Like Mm -hmm. who doesn't want to be acclaimed and respected and, I don't want to say famous because not everybody wants to be a celebrity, but like, I think there is a part in every person who wants to be like liked. And I think, you know, he saw this as a way to be liked. And there is something very melancholy about that. The idea of social capital as being like one of the core motivators for him is really important. And, and the movie mentions it explicitly to a certain extent when the eldest brother is talking about you know the the things that may have corrupted him outside of this situation which we can get to later but Sabzian himself mentions it several times where you know yes he mentions that um there was a, a sort of economic impulse but that Ultimately, he wasn't there to steal money from them, to, right. to take from this family. He liked the idea of being respected and listened to and being a man of importance. And that that was ultimately a greater motivating factor for him, the social capital, than stealing from them or, you know, having any sort of like financial stability that may have come from from this swindling. And that's that's a pretty direct inversion or or just I should say flip of like what we particularly in America believe motivates people because we live in a system that is based on capital Mm -hmm. uh, financial capital first and foremost right so we're always believing that people are motivated by that first and foremost and so I also think from just from an American perspective watching this film thinking about just the curvatures of a human's existence being more than that. And just so appreciated how much this movie shows us that. Um, yeah. And and I particularly felt it in the courtroom scenes. I mean, I was like sitting there and I was like, I cannot imagine this conversation, let alone this situation taking place in the American carceral system. Like yeah. by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. yeah, which isn't like I do not want to praise at all the Iranian judicial system because it has <laughs> incredibly fucked up policies. Right. But it is one of those things where I think the ability to sort of long form testify for yourself and like explain your motivations is, I think, in one way, both a very like traditional idea like you're the only person who can speak for yourself. You're the only person who can explain yourself, all of that stuff. But I do think that there is something so direct about doing that without being like questioned by your lawyer or like cross-examined or whatever. It's like, it gives you the freedom to say potentially exactly what your side of the story is. Mm -hmm. And I think we're sort of unaccustomed to that from an American perspective. And I also think something that is interesting too you're right watching this from like an american point of view is like we're very accustomed to these kinds of stories right like the grifter story mm-hmm. has a particular 
late capitalist relevance. I mean, we have like Sofia Coppola with the bling ring, which was a real story. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, wasn't it like Anna Delphi or whatever, the latest like grifter who was like a German teenager who like built New Yorkers out of millions or whatever. And of course that's also going to be a Netflix show. Um, So we very much have this like our own cycle of taking these figures and crafting narratives around them and trying to understand like, why did this person do this or whatever? Um, But in terms of like actual engagement of those people presented in a way that I think is both honest and a little bit challenging and like not particularly glossy. This is Mm -hmm. not a movie from like a cinematic perspective that has a ton of flourish. It has mics that don't work, (laughs) right? It has like all kinds of like technical shortcomings, but ultimately like that is not necessarily what Kiarostami is interested in. He's always been a fan of very long takes so long. I think that they almost make you uncomfortable as a viewer Mm-hmm. But again, that's sort of like cinema verite, like this is happening right now and I'm putting you in what's happening and it's up to you to pay attention and place yourself there and empathize. Like so many of his films are just about the idea that empathy is in and of itself a radical thing that all of us should exercise, like mm-hmm. no matter what. And I think this movie does that incredibly well in the courtroom scenes. Yeah. Well, and it challenges us right from the get-go. I, I think the opening of this film is very famous uh, in, a, in a lot of regards. Uh, you know, the, the very first sequence in this, in this film is uh, Farazman, the, the journalist, hopping in a cab with two uh, soldiers, two officers, who are going on their way to arrest Sabzian from the, Anan- the Anka's house. Uh, and, and he is recounting to the cab driver as a, as an ignorant party here where he's going and why and and what the situation and details are and then he goes into the home uh and then shortly thereafter the soldiers go into the home and we never see this arrest until later on in the film we are denied the opportunity to see any of the payoffs of this that would be what i think would be considered sort of classically cinematic we mm-hmm. stay with the cab driver mm-hmm. as he turns the car around on the cul-de-sac he very slowly picks up, uh, you know, a, a bouquet of flowers from this leaf pile and uh, looses a, a, a can, like a, a spray can. And then the camera just follows it for about a minute, I would say, as it just loudly rolls down the concrete. And I, I was very charmed by this scene, as I always am, but specifically watching it with Carly on this rewatch, because Carly was prepared for something to happen. And I could see her, <laughs> and I could see her tense up. Right. And and was like kind of holding her breath, waiting for something. And it was such this like wonderful moment of like, aha, this is what cinema, cinematic language has taught us to anticipate. Yes. And mm-hmm. the fact that he denies us that is actually really rewarding. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's this wonderfully uh, subversive little detail where, it, you know, he he's not giving us the obvious. He's not putting the camera in the the uh, sort of most autopilot kind of place and giving us the perspective we think we deserve as a viewer and leaves us to sort of fill in the gaps and it's yeah it's a really powerful kind of tool that he employs here he does it in in many of his films you know i i think about 
the wind will carry us that we have a, a set of characters who are the colleagues of the of the protagonist who we hear but never see and and all of these right. kinds of things you know like um his best scenes deny you something yes whether that's audio mm-hmm. and dialogue or whether that is a clear sense of how the scene ends um one of the best times that he does this is at the end of through the olive trees there is this scene where one of the young men we've been following as a protagonist um, is sort of falling in love with this young woman and she has rejected his advances a couple of times and in typical Persian tradition it's the question of like is she really rejecting them or is she like you know like work for it a little bit like there is that sort of like push-pull because something that is uh, traditional in Iranian culture and you might know this if you ever watched the Iran Bourdain episode is the tradition of Tarof, which means like you are so polite that you are utterly rejecting somebody's offer to you. So there is this sense of like, if you're at like a dinner party with somebody and they offer you the final thing, you have to say no like five times just for politeness and then finally eat it. So like there is, or like if you go somewhere, if you go to somebody's house and they offer you a gift, Mm. you have to say no a bunch of times until finally you accept it. So there's this very elaborate ritual of like, I don't want this. No. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, So in in Through the Olive Trees, this young woman has rejected his advances a couple of times. And there is this long shot at the end of the film where we watch the boy run up this zigzagging trail up a hill. And finally, he catches up with her. And the body language isn't negative. It's not positive. But we hear them interact with each other and we don't get any dialogue. And then the movie ends. So yeah, so Kia Rostami's thing is just like denying you, I think, that one element that you think you want. And I think his point is always you actually don't want this thing. Like the joy is in either filling it in for yourself, like what could have happened, how did this conversation go, or sort of challenging you to say, well, why did I want this in the first place? Like, what about reality as it is presented is not enough? And why do I think it's not enough? And I think, like, this movie does that in so many scenes in terms of, like, the rattling paint can. And I also really like when Sabzion is being arrested. Because there's no, like, real reaction from him. Like, he goes with them. He knows that he's caught. And I love that the mom is like, well, can't you guys let him finish his lunch before he goes? Mm -hmm. You know, so there is, again, this sort of like, I would almost want there to be like a bigger blow up. Like, we caught you. We know what you did. Like, you betrayed us, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you don't get that. You just get this man quietly going with the people who have arrested him and this family who I think in a little bit of a way regrets the fact that it's come to this. And wishes that it didn't have to. The the paint can moment, and I want to go back to something you said, Roxana, about our expectations as a trained movie-going audience. The hairspray can or paint can or whatever it is was a moment for me. And this is where I was like, okay, Kiara Stummy is like doing stuff. Where <laughs> I 
I, when I didn't, when I was watching the can expectantly, and I, I don't know what I even thought. I thought like, is it going to explode? Is like someone going to come out screaming? Like I didn't, I, I don't even know what I expected to your point, but I acknowledged when I didn't get it that I was wanton and this all happened very quickly, but in realizing like my own wantonness for not even something specific, but just an abstract idea of expectation being fulfilled, I understood how often not just in like consuming media and in consuming movies, but also just in life, I'm not paying attention to what I am given in the present moment and not valuing it enough like that he did that that he like made me reflect that way on not just my experience as a viewer of a film but also my experience in life like I had this flash of realizing oh yeah like I'm never satisfied with just the present moment and what I'm given and being grateful for the sounds or my body waking up in the morning and all the things that had to happen so that I could wake up. Like I'm always looking to the next thing. I'm always expecting something future thinking. And like, he does that so many times in this film and, and he does it with a rolling paint with can. a fucking rolling <laughs> paint can. That's like when I looked at Aaron and I was like, what is happening? Where right. are we? Like, what right. is this? But I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because that was something this movie left me with was just my own mm. consideration of the ways in which I'm not, uh, I'm never satisfied with just what I'm presented with. I mean, do you think that feeds into your social capital point? Because I mean, is that sort of similar in sort of a different way? But sort of what, like, Sabzian is saying about his own life. Like, he is dissatisfied with the present of his own life. And I think, you know, in Iran, again, so we get this story, which I would assume is the truth, obviously, that he works at a print shop, and a lot of times he doesn't work because there isn't a lot of work to be done. And he didn't have enough money to support his family, which caused his divorce and his wife to leave with one of their children. And unemployment in Iran is pretty high. It's like 12%. There's a lot of brain drain. Um, the majority of the population, I think, is still under 35. So there is very much sort of a generational shift that is taking place that I think most people would assume would skew toward western ideas but you know crippling years of sanctions and the falling apart of the nuclear deal and all yeah. that stuff in the present right now has made this idea of like surely they will embrace america not exactly the case mm -hmm. but in terms of like the movie itself i do think that curastami is always sort of exploring this idea of is your individual life enough and how do you judge or quantify your own happiness and sometimes i don't know really if he has an answer for that so much as he's interested in like giving his characters the ability to voice the fact that they are unhappy and to try to work toward what happiness might be and he doesn't really do this in close-up but i think he does it more in the movies that seem to have more of like 
a tangible connection with the natural world. Because Taste of Cherry, and Aaron, you can probably speak to this, like, is all about the idea that, like, life is difficult, potentially miserable, full of suffering, but it is, like, our natural bodily delights that keep it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Like, watching a sunset or a sunrise or the titular Taste Taste of of Cherry. cherry. (laughs) Like, it is, you know, those are, like, the things that make life worth living i don't know necessarily if close-up has that moment of realization it's interesting to hear you talk about his other work with the idea that he's presenting us with sort of an antidote right or Mm -hmm. a this is where you find salvation this is where you find happiness because i i did actually get a message about that from close-up and What I turned to Aaron and said at the end of this movie uh, through tears was that he reminded me that it's like in these small moments of human connection, real, manufactured or otherwise, that so much is contained, so much life is contained. So I left this film like, feeling very connected to my own humanity. I love that we're talking about his his idea that, um, and I, I believe this too, when I feel closest to something that's bigger than me, God, whatever you want to call it, it's when I'm like by the water or like in mm-hmm. nature, right? But I loved that this movie left me feeling just really reverent for my own humanity and for it's my humanity in relation to other people. It's not individual. It's that these moments of connection that contain so much, so much good, bad pain, you know, happiness, that those are the things that we can also really find some true sense of meaning and happiness in. And like, even as you brought up Roxana, the, the fact that, the Iranian judicial system, as problematic as it may be, contains this idea of forgiveness is something that I was thinking about a lot throughout the film and that it just made me consider the idea of forgiving and the emotions contained in forgiving someone and being on the receiving end of forgiveness, as you said. So I would I would posit that um, He's offering that it's these moments of connection, these small moments of humanity with other people, even when they're manufactured, that actually contain something very real and very grounding. Um, Aaron, are you going to show Carly Taste of Cherry like today? Or... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> because that is that is so much of what that movie is. It is very much about those like tangible physical delights, but they are communicated to a man who is considering suicide through a series of these sort of like human to human conversations and appeals toward humanity and life. And so I think if you dug that nature of this film, I think taste Mm -hmm. of cherry is like your automatic next watch. Great. It's a great companion. Done. Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. I I do want to talk a little bit about the the ending of this film, because I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of circling around a couple of things here that, that come out. So, uh, so readily and so starkly at the at the end of the film in, in terms of this really incredible just like act of empathy and forgiveness on behalf of the family 
Uh, and of course, you know, lar more largely than that, like the, the judicial system in, in this sense, right? Again, Iranian judicial system, like this is not a gold star for, for it yeah. in any regard. Sure. Uh, but that along with the capacity of art in, in the metatextual sense and then within the story itself to connect to the human experience in a way that changes you or in a way that makes you feel affirmed in your existence. And Sabzian says as much, you know, in, in terms of why he admires Makhmalbaf so much, you know, he's talking about his, his station in life, you know, being this person who, by his own regards, by society's regards, doesn't really live a life of dignity, you know, has lost a great many things and been told by people who have loved him, been told by society at large, been told by the, the elite in this society, your life is not worth as much as other people's. There is you. You are a dead end. You're a cul-de-sac. And when he expresses his love of Makhmalbaf and specifically the cyclist, you know, when he says, I, "I I want to scream," you know, I want to shout out into the world my despair and my grief. And then here comes along this man who articulates it through film, and I can go and watch it day after day after day, and it speaks to and shows my life and explains the the, the, the problems that I feel in my life. And it, and that connection to that thing is so profound for him that he decides, like, I, I must embody this man, you know, May, right. maybe not the right lesson to be learned. But but it, it again, you know, like works as as a, a layer that that ripples outwards into close up itself. Right. And, and I think that there's just this incredible, especially coming to a Western audience and being perceived specifically by a Western audience at the beginning of the 90s, you know, in a time where I think of as like the the crushing grip of neoliberalism taking over over Europe and and over America and and coming out of the Reagan years into into the Bush years, thinking of a film that articulates and says, this person, this man is capable of salvation, is capable of a dignified life if only he's given the things that he needs to thrive. If only his material needs are met and, and he can have a job and he can reintegrate and he can find that thing is just a mind blowing assertion in the midst of all of this. And, and you know, it, it, it's a wonder you know, that it took off, I guess, to me, you know, that 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 Western audience has found something so worthwhile in it, you know, that it's it's considered one of these great films of the 90s, um, despite not being met with the same level of acclaim in in Iran itself. Yeah, I mean, I obviously do not remember that because I was a baby. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was like three years old. Um, so I don't know necessarily. I cannot firsthand, like, read those reviews. But it is very interesting to consider that general Iranian audiences seemed, like, not super into it. Hmm. But I also think something that is interesting is, like, I've always been very curious about within Iran how these sort of like experimental films are treated. Hmm. Like if Iranian citizens consider them as made for them, or if they sort of consider them as made for an international audience, that's something that I would like love to further explore because I think it is so interesting. Again, in terms of like the stories we tell about ourselves mm -hmm. and how we might create them and who we have in mind when we're telling them. So all of that is really interesting, but I completely agree with you that ultimately what this film is saying 
is that like everybody has the capacity to understand and appreciate art and everybody has the capacity and desire to live in a more dignified way Mm -hmm. so like the choices that he makes obviously are not great (laughs) but they don't necessarily come from this place of like he wanted to dupe the family like he is so and i think i you know i'm gonna take this as the truth here whatever that could be in this film like i really take it as he did not want to like dupe or steal from them Mm -hmm. i really took it as like he wanted to experience something with this family who didn't really know him that would make him feel admired and treasured and beloved and it is honestly a commentary on like how incredibly depressing our reality is that that feeling does not feel available for everyone especially people of a lower social class so yeah so the movie very effectively lays out all of that and then you have again this sort of reality rejecting or maybe reality fulfilling however you want to consider it ending ending where Hussein meets Makhmabov and I don't even know I, I don't even know if I can like talk about the ending without getting like really emotional but it is so again such a like mind fuck in terms of like on both sides right like how is it to meet your hero who you've pretended to be <laughs> yes <laughs> and and how is it to meet this man who pretended to be you and sort of like i think the, the generosity that has to come in that interaction in terms of like acceptance and we keep saying forgiveness and I, I don't even know. I, I yeah. don't even know how to talk about it. I don't even know. It's. It, I think it's a near unanimous fear that we'll all just break out into tears considering yeah. like that yeah. moment when when Sabzian just breaks, breaks down, down into tears and collapses <laughs> into Makhmabov. And oh my yeah. god, it's yeah. it's just numerous times. It's yeah. it's incredibly moving. And then you know the score kicks in, and it's it's just like this like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in film. It's just like. It's so deeply human and you can't help but just like express this sadness and this pity and this empathy and this mm-hmm. love for, I don't know, it's it's impossible not to have a visceral emotional reaction to the end of this film. There's a moment at the end when Sabzian is ringing uh, the Ahanka family and he's saying, it's me, it's Sabzian. And they're kind of like, who, what? And he says, right. it's Sabzian. And then he says, Makmalbaf, just yeah. like sort of under his breath. And yeah. it's this moment of, of like, did he say that because he's with the man? Or right. did he say that because he's like, remember, I was him. And also right. then like, you realize the family is meeting two versions of this man. And th- it, it, there's there's also all the sort of like metatextual philosophical questions aside from the moment being insanely emotional. Um, Mm -hmm. The, those little details. And when you talk about denial, Roxana, the fact that we're pulled away from this incredibly intimate small moment with these three people, we're watching it from a distance and don't get to see their faces really, or, you know, sort of, 
the the color of their exchange but but that almost made it more affecting for me and to your point it's when it's when Kiara's dummy denies us the thing we think we want that we're actually beyond satisfied with what he's giving us um because that that moment in the end when when he when they're all kissing one another and they embrace and and he says makmalabov says it's not the same sabzian that even was a an interesting line to consider right like what is the same sabzian who do we even right. know who the real sabzian is and Right. Yeah, there's just a lot, there's a lot of questions contained, even in this moment of finality. Because their request of him, the family's request of him in terms of offering their forgiveness is like, be a better person, right? And that is both one of those questions that, one of those statements that seems incredibly easy and incredibly impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what does it mean to be a better person? Like, I can stop lying. Like, sure. But will you like recognize who I am in my honesty? You know, it's like they don't recognize who he is when he introduces himself as such. I would be very curious to know if any of this part of it was scripted. I feel like no, because I felt like the dropped out mic felt genuine. But I would love to know how much of this was really what happened and again in terms of just the cinematic questioning does it matter right how it Mm -hmm. happened you know like i i think that the movie is forcing us to continually ask that question like do the circumstances matter or does our emotional reaction matter yes and i think all of us are united in that emotional reaction of like this is incredibly fulfilling and also incredibly sad at the same time. And I love all the little details that go into it. Like I love the two of them on the motorcycle together. And I love the flower buying and that Makhmalov is like, Oh, don't get yellow, get red. (laughs) You know, like I love like all of those little details that sort of build up to this moment that is cathartic and also clearly not the end of this story but the end of the chapter that we've been allowed to see and i don't know it's just really good it's really good i'm yeah i'm apprehensive to to wade into the next topic just because there there is some information out there and available in terms of you know some of the levels of artifice of this film Mm -hmm. and a continuation of the story um, but I think I'll go there, and and if at any point it it ruins the illusion too much, just tell me to shut up, and <laughs> uh, and we'll keep you know living living in our perception of it. But supposedly, you know, there there is a, an essay that goes along with this Criterion edition of the film uh, that that says that many of those audio issues at the end are a manipulation. Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> And, <laughs> well, I I wrote down when we were watching, I was like, the audio cuts out right, the audio breaks down right when yeah. Sabzion breaks down. Yeah. And and it's it's that's where you're sent on this like emotional ride. So that's kind of yeah. what made me question, like, is he manipulating us? Like, is this right? Because I I felt I felt the tension of like 
Sabzian breaking down into Makmalbov's arms and then the audio cutting out. And I was like, huh? What like, happened? And, and I was in that state the entire time. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective tool. Yeah. So it, yeah. I'm, that doesn't surprise me. But Wait, Aaron, what else? Destroy our <laughs> illusions. Destroy our lives. All right, what else? Here we go. Well, so there yeah. is also a, a documentary made uh, a little bit longer right. after the fact called Close Up Long Shot, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, a profile of Sabzian himself. And apparently it it is a, a lot of interviews with, I've, I've not seen it. I don't know if you have, Roxana. I haven't. But it, it's a lot of interviews with people close to the man and and who have mm-hmm. known him through through a, a large portion of his life and, and are being interviewed after after he's sort of, you know, gained this status as the subject of, of close-up. And... You know, I, I guess he's described within the the film itself as something of like a, a mythomaniac and and something of of kind of this you know megalomaniac uh, and, and someone who is is duplicitous and deceptive in his nature and has a history of this thing, which is sort of alluded to somewhat yeah. in the film. You know that that he has yeah. impersonated other people before, or or impersonated mm-hmm. Makhmalbov before. Uh, it, and in this this same essay uh, in the Criterion Edition, uh, Kiristami, I guess claims that after seeing this film he was unable to sleep for something like three days uh, because I think that that in itself it it managed to I think dismantle some of his own assertions and his own perceptions of the man and who he was and, and his motivations um, I am really I, I don't know that I want to watch it <laughs> frankly yeah it's, I don't it's, know if I want to it, either. it's one of those things where I you know I think that the the myth and I think that the the manipulation of that story and, and the telling of it is something that transcends itself a little bit and, mm-hmm. and, and becomes something so genuinely human and so so empathetic that I, I don't want another version of that story. I don't think I want anything to corrode it or, or to destroy it. Um, well, and, 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 and maybe that's living in the artifice the exact way that Kiristami kind of kind of asks maybe. us to do, you know, is, is like choose yeah. for yourself how much of this to believe in and how much not to. But you also right. have to ask the question, you know, we know this, that documentaries are not like necessarily Mm -hmm. a one-to-one depiction of reality. So there's also a certain amount of manipulation and storytelling that takes place even in a real documentary finger quotes. So, you know, there's a part of me too, that wonders like what, what manipulation uh, may come of us watching, you know, a story about this man that's told in direct opposition to the one that is very well known. There's certainly something to be gained, I think, by dismantling that fo- that image we have of him. So right. even even in engaging with the documentary about it, you're still running up against the questions that Kiara Stami is asking in his original text. Absolutely, it makes you question right away. You know. It- this film existing as sort of like an in opposition and, and almost kind of like a hit piece on Sabzian, like in itself is artificial, is, uh, you know, uh, carefully selected as, you know, these, these pieces that create a narrative that counters the one that we've seen in close up. So, you know, in, in some ways I feel like, yeah, Kiristami probably is, is maybe admitting to falling victim to that same l- layer of manipulation in cinema, in, in documentary a little bit, right. That, that, this thing changes our persuasion or changes our mind about something by illuminating certain elements that we were otherwise not privy to. But ultimately, as you're saying, Carly, uh, still requires us to suspend a level of disbelief, still requires us to sort of engage with it as fact. 
And, and I think in both cases, you know, there, there's not one or the other that necessarily can make claim to being the more substantive or the more truthful in regards to the story. You know, it's, it's, it's all oftentimes probably somewhere in the middle. And I think something that's hard too with that is it's like, okay, so he was a duplicitous person. Is that necessarily different from what we already knew? Like, I'm sure that there is additional context and additional detail. And of course they interviewed more people and like all of that stuff. But I don't think that close up asks us to think that he is an honest person. I think it asks us to think, what are the conditions that lead to this sort of distancing of yourself and this idea to transform into another person? And like, what are the material and social conditions that cause that? And then also like, what are our responsibilities as people consuming that story to then consider potentially the way that we like perform ourselves or interact with other people and ask for their sympathy or their pity. So it's one of those things where it's like, I can totally understand the desire to be like, who is Hossein Sabzion? But I don't know if it necessarily takes away from the conversation that the film is having a larger conversation about the the purpose of movies and what they do, which we talked about earlier, and the purpose of those sort of like human to human, not even like arguments or disagreements, but just like people to people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I'm having a hard time describing it. Like, I want to say that that's like life and what it's just saying about how we live our lives. And I, I'm not sure that knowing more definitively that Sabzion is like a charlatan, as they would say in Farsi, because a lot of Farsi <laughs> is French. Um, you know, I don't know how much I would think like, okay, well, changes my idea about the movie. Right. And the audio, though, the audio is like, very upsetting. How dare you, <laughs> I'm <Aaron>? so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I will apologize for that one. But yeah, I mean, close-up doesn't function as like a hagiography or anything like that, right? It's right. not It's not meant to be this like edifying thing for Sabzion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. far more complex than that. And so like, you know, Longshot being a thing that tries to dismantle this this artifice further almost doesn't seem necessary the film doesn't doesn't yeah. ask us to, to perceive this person as morally good or bad and it's it's much more complex than that and i think that that yeah. ultimately is why close-up remains remains important and remains the sort of like final word on this person yes and on this this conflict because mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't ask us to choose sides there's there it, it empathizes with everybody at once and ultimately just asks us to try to to connect with the person's motivation rather than connecting with or moralizing and making a judgment about the person. Like, can, right. can you connect with feeling less than, can you connect with feeling a level of indignity in your own existence that could mm-hmm. persuade you to change something, to be dishonest about yourself, to be dishonest with other people? Surely all of us can, right? This is a, a, a right. incredibly ubiquitous human trait, this, this but, thing. But there are also you know, no villains in this story. Like if we're thinking about this impetus to empathize and the mm-hmm. way that Kiara Stami is engendering that impetus in us, like 
I also related to the Ahunka family and I also very much so related to the reporter and like mm-hmm. I I could I could feel myself experiencing and understanding their perspective regardless of you know where they sat in the story and that's another beautiful thing and entirely subversive you know we're we're pretty used to having a protagonist whose side we are either on or not right and and understanding the the traditional sort of binaries of good and bad and and I love that this movie complicates that and the only other thing I want to bring up is something I couldn't stop thinking about that was in the back of my mind as I was watching this movie and even afterward as I was considering it, which is Iran, this story taking place in the wake of just like intense and pervasive destruction of Iran and Iranian people, civilians and soldiers in one of the longest wars of our modern history. And you know, famously the amount of gassing that took place. And like thinking about this story about um, about something so small and so human um, just like happening in the wake of such destruction and a, a country so obliterated, um, just like I, I couldn't stop thinking about that. I could not stop thinking about this story and these people and if again if we're thinking about denial like what Kiarostami denies us we don't see any of that we don't see any of the destruction we don't see any of just the absolute violence that took place against the Iranian people um, for many years and just the brutality of it we don't see a shred of that and I think it I mean, as evidenced by this conversation, it made me think of it more. It made Mm -hmm. me think about that being the backdrop to um, this very human exchange between these people. And, you know, it's also like when we think about, I don't want to ground this in a Western perspective, but I just want to contrast this with the fact that er the way that Iran was being portrayed in Western media still is portrayed and still is Mm -hmm. portrayed. um, But particularly during the Iraq Iran Iran war, um, this is not the image we were seeing. Right. And yeah, yeah, I, I, I just want to make sure that like we talk about that because I think the fact that it's, uh, that this story is is taking place with that as the backdrop is notable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that is not directly alluded to a ton of times in Kiarostami's work. And I don't know if that was to keep his work like acceptable within government censors mm-hmm. or how much of that shaped his storytelling. I mean Something that is that Asghar Fahri does very well is, you know, he keeps his stories within the government dictates for what is acceptable, quote unquote, and not acceptable. But every single one of his films is grappling with these ideas of Iranian domestic life in the time of sanctions, axis of evil, international aggression, all of that sort of stuff. So Fahri's films are very much like walking that tightrope constantly. Mm. I think that Kiorostami sometimes does something a little bit different 
in that his films sometimes feel very timeless and that they don't seem necessarily grounded in a certain time period, but they're asking these larger questions, like you said, about like, what is human resilience? And like, what is the core of that? And in terms of the other films we've talked about, The Wind Will Carry Us does this very well because it has its protagonist go out to these like rural parts of Iran that I don't think anybody has really seen in terms of Western media, Mm. unless you've watched films like A Time for Drunken Horses, which is about like the Kurdistan region of Iran and like these very rural areas where people still like work the land Mm -hmm. and dress in traditional dress and speak Persian dialects that not a lot of people outside of those regions understand. So I think that is a very interesting film in terms, again, of like putting a spotlight on a part of Iran that you wouldn't necessarily recognize. And then again, like the Coker trilogy also does a really good job with this because he is going to these villages that were just flat out destroyed by Iran's constant earthquakes. Mm. And I think what he's doing in those films is sort of using the earthquake destruction as a stand-in for the Iran-Iraq destruction and talking about how like these people still somehow get up every day in their homes with their families and their donkeys and their birds and like live their <laughs> lives, right? I mean, that is the responsibility that we are tasked with is living. And how do you do that? And I think Kiarostami is always interested in that question of living. How do you do that? And uh, each of his films is trying to find an answer. Absolutely. You know, it, it's not necessary to contextualize this thing in, in its place in history in order to to understand it and to be moved by it. Absolutely. But, yeah. you know, g- given, you know, the, the knowledge of of the era and, and of the conflict, I think, especially as as, you know, a, a participant in this art piece of art uh, as an American is an mm-hmm. external layer that I think w- contributed to to how I felt about it afterward, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. as an American the culpability and complicity in in America's involvement in that conflict, mm-hmm. the way that we were able to provide, you know, a lot of the chemicals, a lot of the weapons that, that you know, kind of uh, were, were used against these people, and then to watch something that humanizes them during that era in a way that asks right. you to hold both of those things, you know, both of those sort of countervailing things in in tandem and mm-hmm. and say, look at look at the people, look at look at the emotion, like look look at the humanness here. Right. And look at the what the day to day lives right. of this. And look yeah. and look at what our government and our people are capable of doing against people like this. Like mm-hmm. it, it it only radicalizes me further, you know? <laughs> like it, right. it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it's not a, a necessary component of, of the film. But it but it does yeah. knowing about it, I I think just make the thing sink i think just a little bit deeper you know and 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 softens me a little bit and and just makes me feel so much more uh, profoundly and acutely all of the things that kurostami is is showing us here and then asking of us you know to to reflect and to relate and to ultimately just like embrace that connection that oneness and that sameness of humanity regardless of time and place I'm going to yeah. quote Roxana frequently now as Kiara Stummy asking the question, living, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we yeah. do that I mean, thing? How do we do that? Yeah. 
Um, have you guys seen Under the Shadow? No. Okay, that is also very good. Um, it is from Iranian filmmaker Bebek Anvari, and it is a horror film that is set during the Iran-Iraq War. Wow. Okay. And it was on Netflix for a while. It's basically like a ghost story. Um, and that's very, very good. And that, you know, and Babak Anbari is somebody who I think is around our age, like 30s. Um, so I think, again, it sort of speaks to like the generational aspect of like, I think for filmmakers who lived through the 80s and the 90s, I could see them wanting to distance themselves from the trauma that they had lived through by making films that didn't directly speak to that. But I think now that we're getting like a generation or two removed, we have the ability to like directly address what happened Hmm. and make films that specifically incorporate that historical moment. Um, So I would recommend that it's really good. I think it's still on Netflix or it's on prime, but um, that's also a must watch. We'll find it. We will find it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Watch that. I think that uh, I think that that's a good place for us to to wrap up. Um, we've we've covered a lot here, and if you watch one film this year, hopefully you'll watch more. But if you only have ninety minutes of your life free and available from here until December thirty first, twenty twenty one, sit down and watch Kiristami's Close Up. It is an unbelievable, remarkably human work. No matter which angle you approach it from, knowing nothing about it knowing everything about it. It is unbelievable. It's just breathtaking. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. And I could not think of a better person to join us in uncovering the layers of it than you, Roxana. So thank you for being here. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. This was always the kind of conversation that I think, like, could a conversation get this nuanced and thoughtful? And then you guys are like, yeah, of course, it's us, obviously. (laughs) So, That's yeah, high praise. Thank you, guys. Flatter us. Thank you yeah. Roxana. Where where can yeah. people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Roxana underscore Hadadi. You can find my writing at Pajiba, Crooked Marquee, AV Club, Vulture, Polygon, lots of random places on the internet. So, you know, whatever you read, thank you for reading it. Yeah. I think you have a, a pretty great piece on uh, one of the Coker Trilogy uh, works on what, Brightwall Darkroom? Yes, I have a piece on uh, Through the Olive Trees on Brightwell Dark Room. And uh, if you're going to read that, that would be cool. Awesome. We'll link to it in the show description. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, That has been us for this week. Uh, As always, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. uh, And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. 